Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. everyone, and thanks again for checking out our podcast. Um, as many of you know, uh, we have just transitioned to a new chapter in our community where now we're worshiping at the Orlando Science Center at 10 a.m. on Sundays, which is tremendously exciting, and it's been um, just such a blessing to be in that space and to feel tangibly uh, like we really are uh, moving into uh, a new era for our community and the, the sense of excitement and camaraderie and, and grace uh, that has permeated this transition has been absolutely phenomenal. But um, as it tends to happen in major transitions like this, we haven't worked out all the glitches yet. So um, the message from this past Sunday was not recorded. So I, once again, uh, I'm coming to you from my home office. It's a beautiful day. Here in Orlando, the sun is shining, the clouds are big and billowy, and it feels like a wonderful day to continue our discussion on the virtues. Um, We are in a series called And the Thing After That, kind of exploring what happens after we uh, find salvation in Jesus, after we pledge allegiance to him as our king. Do we twiddle our thumbs for the next 30 or 40 years until we die and then we get to go to this disembodied place called heaven? Like what happens between our baptism and our burial? And I think that that's the place where we talk about formation, that it's about who we are becoming. And so really that's what we're trying to do this series is looking at virtue as the formation of our character, that we look not only like Jesus more and more day by day as we meet with his spirit to do that interior work, um, but we also become more fully and authentically human. And the passage that we're really drawing from from this whole series is a little piece of uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians that we had looked at uh, several weeks ago when we went through his entire letter. And he says this in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And so we're looking at this. By no means is this an exhaustive list of the virtues. There are so many variations and different lists, and some of them are so wonderful and so worthy of being explored. But for our purposes, we wanted to kind of follow Paul's thinking here um, in this list of virtues. And so um, Jonathan kind of opened us up last week by looking at uh, what's alternately defined as mercy, compassion, or tenderheartedness. Today, I'm going to be looking at kindness. So I'm going to pray and just jump right into this. So, Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here, wherever here might be for us. Maybe we're driving from one place to the next, or we're sitting by a lake, or we're uh, just going about our business, working from home. Whatever it is, Lord, here is defined as the place where you are and where you meet us. And we're so thankful for that, Lord, um, that you transcend location, time, place, um, that you want to be known as the God who is with us, Emmanuel. And so, Father, I ask in this moment that you would make your withness apparent to each person, each of your dear ones that's hearing this message today, and they would be able to relax into your presence, that we could incline our ears to hear your voice 
and how you desire to meet our stories today. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. You know, I began this series uh, by talking about how often within the Christian household we perceive that we are the morally superior people in the world and those who are not of the church, the, the supposed the world, the culture, is inherently immoral. Um, but, but as I've really, as I've grown up, as I've listened to conversations within the church with, and within our own society, I'm recognizing that I think the problem is not that our world today is immoral but hyper-moral. I think that's the real crisis that we're facing today. And that's a crisis within the church, and it's a crisis within our society at large. That there's so much expectation on us to form fully formed opinions, to act, to do, to behave, in order to be seen as deserving of a place at the table. And if we get it wrong, we end up being on the wrong side of history. And there's a tremendous amount of pressure, this kind of legalistic, rule-following do's and don'ts that's crushing all of us because we are simply overwhelmed by the amount of data that's coming at us day after day, the amount of choices that we need to make, the decisions that we have to have, the opinions that we need to formulate. And ultimately what happens in all of this is that we very quickly learn how to sift between people to discover who is deserving of our love, our energy, and our attention, and who is not. And so often what has happened, with, especially within the era of, of the internet, of our strong online uh, personal presence, is that we have this tendency to reduce people to their ideologies. You know, I think that for our, uh, our ancient brain, the, our, our brain that was formed over thousands of years, you know, we still don't understand um, on a deep level that, that there's a human being on the other side of the screen. If we can't see each other, engage with each other, feel the presence of another person in the room. It's so easy for us to turn other actual human beings with real stories, with real hopes and dreams and pains and failures into their ideologies that are being presented to us online. And we sift through them so quickly, trying to figure out how do I belong? How do I protect myself? How do I find success in this world? And I think that that sets us up so beautifully to, to understand why virtue is so important in this modern era, because we're constantly being challenged to have the right behaviors, to act a certain way, to, to uh, follow the right set of rules, that we miss the conversation about not so much what we're to do, but who we are becoming. And that's really what we're talking about with virtue. So today, I'm going to be focusing in on the virtue of kindness. Um, and I never really found a satisfying definition for kindness that I think really met um, how big and grand of an idea this is. Um, but this is kind of over the years, this is where I've come to. I believe that radical kindness tips the scales of blessing in the favor of the other person. And so we, we kind of move from where Jonathan left us last week, that the merciful, tender hearts that we're to cultivate to look more like Jesus lead us to an action, like that, that compulsive need uh, to enter into the presence of another person. And I think this is where we begin to see real kindness uh, take shape. And what do I mean when I say blessing? You know, I think we're in a world uh, that craves blessing. All of us, we, we crave blessing, but too often we settle for the lesser things. Um, we settle for uh, the likes and the small affirmations of social media. 
we settle for performance reviews or things that continue to dance about the surface of what it means to be a human being and actually reinforce our belief that our identity is something surface. That if we have the right beliefs or we behave the right way or we perform a certain way, then we're going to be valued by the people around us. I think the beauty of blessing is that blessing pierces beneath the surface of all of these transitive, performative things to bless the beauty and the inherent value of being a human being. Now, within the Christian household, we specifically talk about that as being a child of God, Um, that it's not about us being deserving or undeserving, uh, which I think are human categories for judgment, Um, But we are blessed because of who we truly are in God's eyes, because he sees us as worthy. And then our identities are not something to to earn, but are a gift that is to be received and to steward well. So the story that I really felt led to this week is one that will be familiar to many of you. It's in Luke chapter 10. It's the, what's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I think the important thing for you to understand here is the relationship between uh, the Jews of Jesus's day and the Samaritans. So many of you know the Jews uh, feel this calling to stand apart from the Gentiles, which is basically everybody who's not Jewish. And and the law, the Torah, was largely, uh, a huge part of it was to kind of help Jews to stand apart, which is the, the, the word holy, to be holy, to be set apart from the cultures around them. And they had an uneasy relationship with a lot of the Gentile people groups, um, a lot of them being Greeks, uh, especially in the day of Jesus, Greeks and Romans. But there was this other people group called the Samaritans, and they were kind of the neighboring people. And they actually branched off from the Jewish people hundreds of years prior. And they kind of maintained um, some semblance of belief in uh, the the Jewish God, Yahweh. Um, they had some of the same, uh, you know, tradition, but they were almost seen as kind of these, these half-breeds, like they weren't Jewish enough. And so for many Jews, um, you know, Gentiles are an uncomfortable relationship and the Samaritans are just a flat-out abomination. Like there's nothing worse than getting Judaism wrong. And so this story you're going to find this uneasy tension, not just within the story between a Samaritan and some uh, Jewish religious elite, but also within the people who are listening to the story because they're being forced to confront some of their contempt that they might have for people um, who they deem as being totally unworthy of showing God's love to someone else. So this is Luke chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbors yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But... He wanted to justify himself. He asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, how many of us, that's our response. And that's where the legalism begins to set in. What are the rules? What are the boundaries? What are the lines in the sand that determine who's a good person and who's a bad person? Who's deserving of my love and who's not deserving? And we're just so inherently wired to that. That's why we have such a 
a fealty to our political parties or our worldviews or, you know, whatever it might be. There's, we just naturally gravitate to say, okay, these are my neighbors because we all agree. We all have the same opinions. We all believe exactly the same things. We've agreed these are the lines in the sand that put us on the right side of history. And so this guy's doing what many of us would, that we're, we're coming to Jesus and we're saying, just give me the boundaries, Give me the rules and the expectations so that I can just follow those things and know that I'm a good boy or I'm a good girl. And in typical manner, Jesus does not answer the question directly because, again, Jesus doesn't want to just give us more rules and regulations. He wants us to think. He wants us to engage and kind of ignite our divine imagination to realize what it is he's calling us to in the kingdom. So in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So these are two Jewish religious elite. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I just, I just wish I could hear the contempt in the voice of this expert in the law. That these two guys, this priest and this Levite, who would have been very much in his company, the well-educated, the Jews among the Jews, above the Jews, like the most Hebrew of Hebrews, as Paul calls himself, has to admit, actually, it's the half-breed. It's the guy that doesn't I don't think gets it right, who's not worthy of being called one of God's children. And I just wonder if the the contempt is dripping out of his lips as he responds to Jesus, as he realizes that he's been called out and how quickly he is to draw lines in the sand of who is worthy and who is not. And so one of the things that I want us to do when we're looking at each of these virtues is not just to flesh out what that virtue is in the kingdom, but to examine where we've lowered our sights to lesser versions of these things. They're almost like counterfeit virtues that many of us have settled for. And I think there's, there's a couple different ones that I recognize when it comes to, kind, uh, to kindness. You know, we all understand being nice. We understand championing fairness. And we even have this vision of being tolerant people. But we don't know what to do with real kindness. You see, believe niceness. You know, we we live in the South and niceness is the currency by which we engage with other people here. I think up North, there's kind of an indifference that keeps people at arm's length. And here in the South, it's niceness that keeps people at arm's length. And niceness and fairness tend to try to maintain some sort of a balancing act where we want everyone to get what they deserve and potentially we might want to lift somebody up to our level. But so often what happens is we're really triggered when we recognize that somebody's getting more than us. So we want to kind of drag them down to our level. And so niceness becomes fairness, which becomes um, this very skewed version of equality. 
Um, and I think similarly, tolerance um, as a major vision for our culture today is problematic because not only do I think it's unreasonable and impossible to attain, because what we find out so often is we are tolerant of everyone except for those who we deem to be intolerant. So it kind of becomes this logical fallacy. But what tolerance ends up just keeping other people at arm's length from one another. And it's kind of that mantra that we find so often today, live and let live. Well, I'll just live my life and I'll make your decision, my decisions and you live your life over there and you make your decisions. But there's no real interaction. There's no real community. And so we end up robbing ourselves of the potential we have for deep loving human connection when it just becomes about tolerance. And I think tolerance actually leads us to tribalism because we find that we'll naturally gravitate to those with whom we already agree. And it leads us to loneliness because these tribes increasingly get smaller and smaller because we're afraid of interacting with people that we don't see eye to eye with in the name of tolerance. But I think kindness is something else. I do not believe that kindness is nice and I do not believe kindness is tolerant. And actually, um, Ted Neesmith, a, a dear member of our community, came up to me after the, the message on Sunday and put it just so succinctly, and I wish I had said this on Sunday, but he said, the bridge between nice and kind is sacrifice. And I love that because I feel like it doesn't cost me anything to be nice. I'm not, I'm not being exposed. I'm not putting in any real effort or any kind of sacrifice. It doesn't even cost me a lot to be tolerant because I'm kind of, you know, turning an eye from the people around me and just letting them do what they want. But real kindness, I think, actually costs us something. But in that, we recognize that we have the capacity to grow, to become more than we were. Um, and I, think, I, I like to think about it like this, that real kindness is actually quite hard for us to receive because it speaks to a worth that we fear that we don't possess. How many of you, when someone is extraordinarily kind to you, automatically look for a way to pay them back? Like maybe they, just something small, they, they buy you a coffee or they bring some food around to your house or they offer to watch your children and automatically you've been wired to figure out a way that you can pay them back. And that's so inbred into us that relationship is inherently transaction. That I give you, you know, to use the parlance of the scripture, I give you two denarii of vulnerability in this relationship. And then you have to give me two denarii back. And I find that so often what happens, the, the breakdown in relationship is because we're so transactional and we're so um, stingy in the name of niceness that we put something out on the table and then we expect a return. Or conversely, somebody else offers us something generous. Some, they offer us a gift. And we automatically are scrambling to find out a way. How do we bring balance back to this relationship? And I think that that's where so much of the relational breakdown comes. Because it becomes so transactional instead of this deep abiding trust within it. Because I think so often when we look for fairness in relationships, it's because it's actually motivated by shame that we do not feel that we are worthy to receive a true radical gift of kindness. I remember hearing a really powerful sermon by um, the amazing Dan Allender several years ago. Dan is um, a therapist. He has an amazing school called the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. And he was speaking about this experience of radical kindness that he had been to several conferences to speak and he had engaged with um, a man from Ethiopia who was kind of following his work. And over time, uh, they became good friends. 
And this man said, well, if you ever find your way to North Africa, I would love to have you over to my house to meet my family and to share a meal. And so um, as it happened, Dan was able to actually visit this man at his home in North Africa. And they, they drove out there and he said it was phenomenal. He said it was truly one of the best meals he'd ever had in his life. There was this coffee ceremony that just each part of it was just like poetry watching it. And the, the meal just kept coming out one um, one entree after the other and there was amazing drink and food and there was singing and there was dancing and there was laughter and just all through the night they just celebrated and enjoyed one another's company and so Dan is driving back to the city with his tour guide he's just kind of absentmindedly staring out the window and he says wow that was a truly splendid evening what an incredible meal and he said that his guide kind of turned to him and said you have no idea and he said he noticed it was, it was one of those little comments that someone says that you know there's something deeper behind it. And so Dan began to push and to ask what he meant by that. And the guide said, that meal cost that family one month's salary. One twelfth of their annual income was just in that meal. And Dan automatically began to squirm like you and I are, realizing, oh my goodness, I have imposed myself upon this family. And, and, and he just started to become incredibly uncomfortable. And all of a sudden, very quickly, the guy just snapped in and just pointed his finger in his face and said, stop, I know what you're doing. You're looking for ways that you can pay them back for what they just did for you. Stop it. Suffer the kindness. That's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about being nice. We're not talking about being fair. We're not even talking about being tolerant. We're talking about when someone tips the scales of blessing in our favor, where it forces us to confront our shame and our fear that we might not be worthy of what's being offered to us. Because that's the moment when God can actually do something for us because we have to model what we mean by kindness by what we see in God, that God is not fair. God is not nice. God is certainly not tolerant. God is profoundly kind. We find this in Romans chapter 2. Paul is talking about those, judge, those transactional judgments of man and how we uh, meet out what we think justice is. And when we really come to understand God's love for us, it radically upends all of our categories. And Paul writes this in Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And so what is the purpose of God's kindness to us? It's that it would be such a radical affront to our protective nature of always looking to maintain the balance in our lives, that his kindness so radically ruptures our understanding of ourselves and our performance mentalities that it actually begins to change the way that we think and it calls us home to him. You see, friends, niceness and tolerance don't help us to grow. They leave us where we're at, continually looking for, to move from one transaction to the next because they're ultimately not love. Niceness is not love. Tolerance is not love. And I think if you and I really think about the moments when someone has been profoundly kind to us, we recognize that experiencing real kingdom kindness from others challenges us to begin to give ourselves a little bit of grace. That maybe we are pushing a little too hard, trying a little too hard, 
They're very unforgiving of ourselves. And so what do we see in the story of the Good Samaritan being the neighbor, being the one who is practicing this radical kindness without any expectation of being paid back? Well, there was no moral or theological superiority in him. You see, these religious elite, it's very easy to wonder. They're probably thinking about the laws in Torah that prevent them from touching a dead body because that makes them unclean. And so for them, being faithful to God means that they can't possibly step in and to, to, um, to, to bring uh, salvation to this hurting person. But for the Samaritan, that was never a question of his own moral superiority, his better understanding of what God is actually like. Um, there was no question for him of who deserved what, whether or not this man deserved his help, certainly recognizing that he probably is an enemy of his own people. There was only this radical kindness of seeing this man, his inherent value in the eyes of God, and taking care of him in a way that he sets him up for actual salvation. And so we have to recognize, you know, kindness does not come natural to us. And it's not just about behavior modification, but it is about finding ways that we can co-conspire with the Spirit of God within us to develop kindness as a virtue, as we've been talking about, where we take upon ourselves this vision for virtue, where we're, we're working at it, we're focusing on it, and over time it moves from being first nature to second nature. It becomes part of who we are, but we need that long-term vision for it. Well, I think that practicing kindness insists that human beings are not problems to be solved, but precious children awaiting the welcome home. Do you realize that the opposite of kindness is contempt? This is what Paul's telling us in, in Romans, that we show contempt for the kindness of God. And what is contempt? Contempt is when we have a judgmental disregard for a particular person or a particular people group because we feel superior to them. We feel like we, we deserve more. We're in a better place morally, theologically, whatever it might be. And so when we practice kindness, it begins to rupture our inherent contempt. That's the virtue. It requires no effort to be a contemptuous person. And sometimes it requires a tremendous amount of effort to move from contempt to kindness. I think practicing kindness begins, as so many of these virtues do, with incarnational listening, to put aside our judgments, to put aside our moral structures, even to put aside for a time our sense of theological rightness, and to enter into the story of other people whom we would normally have contempt with, and to try to see the world through their eyes, to listen to their pain, to listen to their struggle. And what happens then is as we practice kindness, it will invite us to examine our own prejudice, our own contempt, and to begin to release our need to control other people. Because if we're honest, that's what niceness is. We're nice to people when we're trying to control and manipulate them to get them to behave the way that we want them to. It's conditional. But kindness, real radical kindness as a sacrifice, is us letting go of our need to control. And so we had, what was our spiritual practice for this week? I said that each week I want us to develop one spiritual practice that helps us to take one more step into that particular virtue. Well, I've been thinking about this a lot over the 
past weeks and indeed over the past several years. If there's one question that I get asked more than anything in this role, it's about LGBT community and the church. And as I've listened to both sides, I kind of, there's a parody of this conversation where either you are affirming or you're non-affirming. There's a line in the sand that has to be there and you need to be on the right side of history. As I've listened to both sides in this conversation over the years, I've had the sneaking suspicion that none of us really know as much as we claim to know. Whether it, it's about biblical interpretation, whether it's about <clears throat> the heart and will of God, whether it's about biology or sociology, all of these you know, huge uh, areas of study that are all converging in this particular arena of human society. None of us know as much as we claim. But to make matters worse, because we've become so entrenched in this binary that we're so convinced. I was actually talking to somebody about this earlier. We gave up the place of seeking bridge building and really entering into compassionate discussion and listening to one another that we've lowered our sights at the most we can hope for. And that is, is that our team wins and the other team loses, that we've ended up talking past one another. And what I found over the years as I've engaged with this, as people have sat down with me with coffee or in my own home to figure out what I believe, to figure out what they believe, is that so often people filter what I say through their ideology because that's already entrenched. We've already decided what we believe and what we think is right and what we think is good. And we're just waiting for people to say certain phrases that will tell us whether or not they're on our side or not. And over the years, I've recognized this all too well that people think either I'm too supportive or I don't tell people the cold, hard truth of scripture um, or I'm too soft on gay people or on the other side, that I'm being deceptive if I'm not upfront with everything that I believe in this particular issue or that I'm homophobic or whatever it might be. And on both supposed sides of this argument, I've lost relationship because of it. And it has hurt. It hurts. It feels profoundly unkind to have these lines in the sand drawn to say, you must agree with me on this position or we cannot be in relationship. And I can tell you this confidently, talking to a lot of my friends who are in ministry, that we pastors feel the pressure to have answers for every little nuance of this discussion that so few other people will rarely afford it. And at the end of the day, the tragedy for many of us, that for ourselves as pastors or entire communities are just pigeonholed by someone's already held beliefs and to say, oh, at the end of the day, you're just one of these types of Christians or you're just one of those types of Christians. But in the meantime, there is real pain among us in our, in our community, not just within City Beautiful Church, but actually within the community of Orlando in our neighborhood. And I was, as I was, I was looking over this and thinking, who are you know, people that, that I have, have had contempt for, that I have been hard-hearted towards, where I have felt like I am morally or theologically superior I'm recognizing that more and more as I continue on following Jesus, that my heart is being softened and broken for the LGBT community, specifically within our city. Now, I know statistics aren't everybody's thing. 
Um, and that's fine. Sometimes we need stories. Sometimes we need data to really understand the reality of the world around us, not just ideologies, not just politics, but like the actual substantive reality of some people's lives. And th these are some things that I discovered. It's actually quite hard to find uh, data on the relationship between LGBT youth and homelessness because it's such a new frontier and there's a lot of people that are trying to find uh, to find out what the reality is within our nation. And it's, it's complicated because some magnet cities, some people may feel more comfortable with being out, whereas in some smaller towns, you know, people might not feel like uh, safe uh, to really speak about their uh, sexuality or their gender or whatever it might be. But these, these statistics that I have found, if they are true, are profoundly disturbing. LGBT youth are twice as likely to abuse alcohol, three times more likely to use marijuana, and eight times more likely to use crack cocaine than non-LGBT youth. LGBT individuals account for 30% of all suicides each year. And it's estimated that they're, they're between one and 7% of the national population. Greater than 50% of transgender youth attempt suicide. Think about that, 50%, half of transgender youth attempt suicide. Roughly 34% of LGBT youth report suffering physical violence from their parents as a result of their sexual orientation and or their gender identity. And many of them, that's because they're coming from religious homes where their religiosity is telling them that they're an abomination and therefore they cannot be loved. They cannot find a place at home. But it's not, in, even in some of the things that I've read, it's not uniquely a religious thing, but this is an American problem. 26% of LGBT youth are forced to leave home because of conflicts with family over sexual orientation or gender identity. And somewhere between 25 and 40% of the youth who become homeless each year are LGBT and the number's likely much higher, again, because it's so hard to track the data. And so what I called us to as a spiritual practice this week, as an act of radical kindness, was to make a donation to a local organization called the Zebra Coalition. And their specific mission is to reach out and become a safe place for LGBT youth in the city of Orlando by providing housing, by providing counseling, and many other services. And my challenge to everyone is to say, put aside your theology on the issue. And this isn't, you know, I can, I, I, just the way that I'm wired, I can already hear all the complaints for and against and people, even, even the fact that I'm making this call, already trying to pigeonhole me in one of these two sides of this debate. And I'm, I'm just at a point, honestly, I'm not interested in that anymore. Like, I just, it's so reductive and uh, cruel and immature. But what I am making a call to is to recognize that there's real pain in our city and that we are actually able to do something about it by, by administering the radical kindness of God to people that maybe we have contempt for. And so what we did is I said, I'm going to uh, match up to $1,200 in donations that are given today towards the Zebra Coalition. And I'm happy to let you know that we raised $6,285 uh, 
uh, by the end of the day, which is absolutely phenomenal, especially considering someone reached out and told me that there was a lot of funds that were no longer available to the Zebra Coalition this year because of government cutbacks. And so for us to be able to come through for them is pretty, pretty amazing. And I know, you know, even as I'm doing this and saying, oh, well, you're just virtue signaling, which I think is a tremendously ironic statement to make when we're talking about virtue um, or just posturing just to kind of get people off my back or, oh, my gosh, does this mean that um, we're validating every single belief that the Zebra Coalition has or every practice? And I'm saying, just stop, put all of that aside. And I'm fully aware that taking this on as a spiritual practice opens us up to more conversations, but not less. And I'm okay with that now because I realize that that's actually the work of discipleship is to continually point one another towards Jesus, to open our lives to him, to receive the radical kindness of God and to repent, to come home and to take on the heart of God. So bless you all. Thank you so much for your donations. For those of you who are listening now, I would encourage you that you can go to zebrayouth.org slash donate and you can make that donation as an act of kindness and see what it is that God does within your soul because of that. So grace and peace to you all. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.